Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I am Jenny Taylor, and I'm going to introduce you to a woman on the other end of the phone, Tabitha Farmer. Say hello, Tabitha. Hello. (laughs) And this woman, I've only ever met her in person twice. Uh, Both times it was in Washington, D.C., About a month or two ago, she and I were there with our children being part of the National Memorial Day Parade. But the time we met was a Memorial Day back a couple of years in 2019 when we met in the White House, where she and I were both there with our children being honored after having both recently lost our husbands in Army service and war. So, Tabitha, I... I'm sorry that I know you. I mean, I think that's kind of the the first introduction we always have. We wouldn't know each other if we hadn't both lost our military husbands. And yet I'm grateful I know you because in the short time I have known you and been connected with you through social media and things, I've learned quite a bit and really been inspired. So thank you for joining us today. And will you let us and our listeners get to know you a little? Can you introduce us to you, your family, your husband, John? Tell us a little about the Farmer family. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. And honestly, it's been it's an honor to meet you. And you're inspiring to me. I was flabbergasted when you I found out that you had seven children. I was like, how many does she have? That's what I say so every good. day. How so many? Smiling. How many do I have? Seven? Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, I thought my four were a lot, but oh, okay, she she takes the cake. She's got it. It's good. Now you trump so, it because you have twins. I just I kept saying, okay, I'll have another baby, but I'm having one at a time. So tell one, us, one the, yes, tell yeah. us about your sweet family. I was was married to Chief Warrant Officer to Jonathan Farmer. We have four beautiful babies: Betsy, Devin, Preston, and Priscilla, who are six year old twins. It would have been our twelfth anniversary that July. Um, in 2019. Um, He was killed in Manbij, Syria, by a suicide bomber, along with three other Americans. A total of 25 people were killed in the incident. Um, So it was was all over the news. And he was special forces. So the hardest part for me, honestly, was seeing his face everywhere. Because with OPSEC, which is, I don't know what it stands for. Operational but Security. <laughs> I do know that one. Operational yes. Security okay. called OPSEC. Okay. So for OPSEC, we always try to never use his name. I never had his face fully on like any Instagram or Facebook. I was very discreet. People actually thought we were divorced because I never mentioned him. They asked, they're like, are you okay? 
how are you doing? It's how how has it been since you got divorced? And I'm like, we're we're still married. Interesting. We're, we still love each other. <laughs> but his his service <laughs> required him to live. Love. His service required him to live kind of a quiet life. Yes, they're known as the quiet professionals for sure. a reason. So, um, and he took that very seriously because he also wanted to go into the FBI after okay. his 20 year stint um, in the so military. How, and how did you meet? Back up even before this, was he always a, <laughs> was he always in the military at the time you met him? Um, was it love at first sight? No, how did it he, start? Um, we met between his junior year and senior year of college, and his cousin was my best friend while in high school. And his cousin Carl kept telling me, you need to meet my cousin. You need to meet him. You guys would be perfect for each other. But I never had feelings for Carl. And I was like, I'm not going to like your cousin. I don't, you know, I, I look at you like a brother. And then I met his cousin. His brother was having a get together. And I met John. And I still remember the first time I met him, my heart really, it just did a dook <laughs> And I, I, I was, I was smitten immediately and tried to act like I didn't notice him because I couldn't speak. I literally was, he was the most handsome man that I'd ever seen. And I was just done. And he finally came up to me. He might have had a couple cocktails. And so he had the, uh, he had some bravery, he had some liquid courage. And the first words that he said to me, he ripped off his shirt and looked at me and he said, you're beautiful and I'm strong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's horrible <laughs> it, was, it was such a bad line but it worked and i was i was like okay act act like i don't care this is not not mm-hmm. and so from then on every i time feel I found like out when that, it's that soulmate <laughs> person that you meet in that way because i've heard other stories and i i feel like my husband and i had a similar kind of introduction i almost feel like it doesn't really matter what they say it doesn't matter how bad no. it is you're going to be smitten anyway right it's too late. It's too late. I yeah. was, it was done it was i was done so but yeah every time that i found out that john was going to be somewhere doing anything i was like oh i i can i can come i can show up it's not a big deal and we would stay up talking about all the things that you're not supposed to talk about religion politics just all of the things, and him and I differed on some things, but I loved it. I loved hearing his point of view as to why he thought that way, and he always intrigued me, and every time I dated anybody, I compared him to John Farmer every single time because I just, I was like, I kept him, I flirted as badly as I possibly could without throwing my number at him. <laughs> like he never flirted back. And I, I honestly, I was like, maybe he's gay. He's the most, he's handsome. All the handsome guys are gay now. That's gotta be it. Um, but wait a minute. He came I, up to you with the, you're beautiful, I'm strong. And I then he, know, and then he I didn't, did. he didn't follow up. Nothing. What? For four years. What? Four years. Four years? Four years? This is a horrible story. <laughs> so what oh happened was his cousin Carl finally got engaged to the girl he was dating. When he told John, he was like, hey, I'm engaged. John said, congratulations. What's top of this number? <laughs> he was oh, my being, goodness. He was being sweet, thinking that Carl had feelings for me, which Carl was like, why didn't you ask for four oh. years ago when I told you, you guys to? were just friends. Oh, like, you man. And were like brother-sister yes. friends, right? That's crazy. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, we never had. I feel feel so angry at Carl for not explaining this to John. And I'm like, you robbed these guys of four years. But how respectful. (laughs) But on the flip side, how respectful was John that he was standing back thinking there was something and he wasn't going to be that pushy guy or that jerk coming in to, you know, break things up. Okay, so he finally asked for your number. Then what? He finally asked for my number and I flew up to meet him because, oh, he ghosted me for a whole week one time because it, was, it sounds horrible. My dad, actually, he had um, stage three colon cancer. And the time that John was going to have off to visit me was the same week that my dad was having surgery. And so I told him, my dad's having surgery. I can come have lunch with you, but I really can't hang out because I'm going to be at the hospital. And John was like, oh, okay. The man did not call me the whole week. Oh, no. So broken and upset and angry at him. I remember I text messaged him. I was like, I don't know what your problem is. I am not playing games. I'm deleting your number. Goodbye. And within like 30 seconds, he called me back and he apologized profusely. And was and he explained, he's like, I thought you needed to have time with your family. I didn't want to intervene. I am so sorry. I will make up with you. How can I see you? Can you come up here? Can you come to Fort Bragg? Come see me. And I remember the night before I left, I was ironing my pants, which I was putting into a suitcase, thinking it was the most insane thing that I was flying up to see a guy. I was like, this is insane. I'm, I've lost my mind. I'm, this is crazy. But I went to visit him. The next day, he told me he was in love with me. And so that was August 13th. He told me he was in love with me. We were engaged by 2006. Okay. So, and then we were engaged on... May 5th, 2007, married July 21st, 2007. <laughs> oh, that is so, so sweet. So after all of those so years of him being in love with you from a distance, it's like Pride yes. and Prejudice. He's just not, right. it's a miscommunication that almost made the love never it happen. Horrible. Yes. Well, you know, the, like, uh, it's the hardest thing we do, right? This whole communication. And I'm starting to date again. And it is interesting. It's very difficult, right? Because if somebody doesn't follow up, like it would have been so easy for him to say to her, well, it sounds like you really need to focus on your family. Let's I'll do it another time. Yeah. I'll give you some right, time. Right. Let's do it the following week or whatever. But he, he thinks to himself, well, she really needs to be with her family and doesn't communicate with you and then you're going well what just happened well i love how you fire back and say that's it buddy i'm deleting your number (laughs) don't mess with tabitha no No. well he learned how to communicate very well and i have to say in our marriage um when he deployed he would constantly call me and constantly text message me he was the one husband that all the other wives were like have you heard from them have they made it and i have like 10 text messages telling me how much he loves me and he misses me and the kids. And so he, he made up for the lack of communication. <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. Tough. He already was in the military when you met him. He was already at Fort Bragg. When, well, that, that military path the, was already the, chosen. The, well, I tried to talk him out of it when we mm, first met. Interesting. Um, but he was between he was between his junior and senior year because I honestly, I grew up, my uncle, one of my uncles was a lifer in the Navy. And he was always gone. And his wife, they, they didn't have the happiest marriage I saw and I was like I don't want that that's not and and I was like I'm never gonna see this guy I don't want him but I was for selfish reasons I tried to talk him out of it because I wanted to see him more (laughs) but I'm I'm very happy that he did not listen to me because honestly I think the military helped him grow up and helped him 
become the man that he was. And he was always a great guy, but the military made him into a man. I love that. And I will forever be grateful that he, he chose the military path. But so he graduated high school. I mean, sorry, he graduated college. And then he went into the military. And I met him after he had gone through selection. Um, John was an 18 x-ray, which means that he went into the military just to become a special forces. Because sometimes, usually, guys are in the military for a couple of years, and then they go through selection to become special forces. Whereas John, his contract was, I want to become special forces, I'm going to go through boot camp, and then selection. So he already knew that that was the type of military job he was after. Right. Okay, so don't go too much into the military path for a quick second. Tell us about the kids. So you you know each other for years. You finally get reacquainted. You get engaged. You get married. He's in the military. You have the four kids, it looks like, in six or seven years. Where Did yeah. you always live at Fort Bragg? Did he, Were there deployments in those years of babies and everything? Tell us maybe the, the years between Betsy was born and when the twins were born, and then we'll, we'll take it to that point for now. He graduated from the Q Corps in 2007, and then we got married, and he was transferred to Fort Campbell, 5th Group, Special Forces. And that's when we got married was when he was at Fort Campbell. And we actually never moved. As an enlisted couple, we never had to move from fifth group. So we moved to fifth group and stayed. And everyone's like, oh, used to moving. I was like, I've never moved our house. (laughs) It's never happened. Which is unusual for active duty Army. I mean, most Mm -hmm. of us do think of you moving every two or three years. Right, but not for special forces, not enlisted. The great thing about special forces is you choose your own path kind of too. So if you want to stay on a team for eight years, like John did, then you stay on a team. Or if you want to branch out, then you can go and do other things too. Um, okay. So it's, it's so very he, unique. He chose to stay. You guys are living in Fort Campbell. You've got these four beautiful kids. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we want you to talk to us about John's military career and how that led him to being in Syria in 2018 and 19. Okay. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Tabitha, so you're married to this special forces soldier. You're stationed in Fort Campbell with 5th Group in the Army. You're living this active duty Army life, but you as a family at least are stationary. You're staying put. Can you tell us about the years, um, kind of, you've, you've now got your kids, maybe this deployment of John's, this assignment. Did he deploy several times? Was this a one-time thing? Walk us through maybe the military side of your married life. So John, um, when he graduated and donned the Green Beret. He was a Charlie, which is the engineer on a 12-man team in Special Forces. So he was the guy who blew up things. And he loved that. He loved doing that. He loved his team time. And when we got married, he was like, we're doing two years in. I'm doing my team time. Then we're going to get out and I'm, you know, do something else. 
And before, he actually had a pretty lucrative job at Merrill Lynch and was doing well for himself, but he decided he wanted to be military. So he was like, oh, I can I can go to, to back to a desk job. And I was like, okay, sure, That's going to be a huge transition. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, all righty. So we had Betsy in May of 2008, and then he was deploying again in it was January 2nd. He was deploying in 2009, and I discovered I was pregnant again <laughs> the day before he deployed. Oh, my goodness. So we had, so we had Devin in 2009, and then he actually went on 10 total deployments, seven combat okay, wait, and three stop operational. Okay, wait, Say that again. Your husband deployed 10 times. Yes. Seven. And and you said they were seven combat and three were operational. That for for most of the world that is not military, that is crazy. Even I'm a National Guard (laughs) wife and my husband deployed four times. We thought that was 100. But so in 12 (laughs) years, he's gone on 10 deployments. Were they a set amount of time each time? Would it rotate? Was it kind of like you're just gone again, back again, gone again, back again? Well, whenever they're back, they actually aren't home either. They're training. They're constantly gone. There was one year that he was actually, we counted up that he was home for a total of seven days out of oh the gosh. year. And that, that wasn't together. That was not, that was us figuring out. I was like, oh yeah, you came home. And then you changed your clothes and went back out. And then it was not seven days together. It was wow. seven days total to spread out. And that was the year that I... I had a little, uh, I had an issue. <laughs> I was a little mm. angry with him. I was the angry special forces wife. And I remember I threw his tough box. He was like, I'm going, I'm deploying again. I was like, oh, you are? And I literally, t- I picked his tough box up, which is extremely heavy, and threw it out our front door. I was like, let me help you go. And <laughs> I remember him, <laughs> I remember him sitting there looking at me going, how in the world did you just do that? And I am like sheer adrenaline, honey. I, I was like, I was like, I don't think you understand what I can accomplish when I put my mind to it. And the man, mm. oh, I love him so much. He said, of course I do. That's why I married you. Wow. And uh, but yeah, I'm like, seriously. Oh, I had you. I Tabitha, had you what year, and, like, what year was went. that? What year was that when you kind of reached your breaking point as an army wife? It, oh, I don't know. They've all meshed up. It's like, together, that's fine. Honestly. But you, but it sounds like that was a period it of time. Yeah, it didn't, no, but then, it didn't last. I mean, you didn't, you didn't divorce him. No. You didn't leave him. You didn't say that's it. I'm oh, done. No. So did you just need kind of to not. be able to vent and regroup? Or I can't imagine the exhaustion yes. of 10 deployments in 12 years when he's home for seven days out of 365. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. not no, we, a we, marriage. Like I said, he worked on his communication skills. Okay. We discovered that along our love language changes when he's gone, and we always made sure we put God first, then each other, then the kids. And he realized that he'd been deploying and gone to too many schools, and he took a step back. He went to that deployment, but then when he came home, he said no to other schools. He was like, I have to stay home because yeah. my wife needs me. And I saw that, and that made the world the, the difference to okay. me because he he turned he turned down a lot of schools because of that. Um, so explain to someone like me who's a civilian, how do you keep a marriage seven days out of a year? I'm sorry, I have no capacity <laughs> for that. I, I just I could my my sister was an army wife, and I just I really struggled with it. I don't understand just regular deployments, but this is excessive. It's a lot. That's why 
the divorce rate in special forces is 99%. Oh, my um, oh it goodness. Takes, <laughs> it takes a strong marriage. It takes a strong man and a strong woman, but we have to work together. And it's hard to do that. And it takes both of them. Because he's on special forces, like, do you have the ability to, like, be on an app or a video FaceTime, something secure? Is there, like, a WhatsApp in order to communicate? (laughs) Yeah. Right. No, we Skype so much, actually, that when he came home from one deployment, our son wouldn't go near him. He had no idea who he was. He was terrified of this huge, because my husband was six foot five. Beautiful, oh, yeah. handsome man. <laughs> and my son was terrified of him. Yeah, so we, we actually had my husband Skype downstairs, and we were upstairs on the computer. And John walked up the steps, Skyping with us. And Devin looked at the computer, looked at Daddy, looked at the computer, looked at Daddy. And then he was like, oh! And that's how he figured out who Daddy was. Yeah. Was looking at the computer and looking at daddy. And we, had, we had to make that concession. We had that with my, my oldest son was about three or four months old the first time my husband deployed. And he ended up being gone a year and a half on two back-to-back deployments. So our baby didn't know him either. And we went through that right. same thing. It was like Elmo had walked out of the TV and into the living room. And it terrified him. Yeah. He was fine yeah. to talk with him on Skype. We use Skype as well. But all right. So tell us, you've gone through this. It sounds like your husband was right when he knew that's why he married you. It does take a very special couple <laughs> to make this work. You're in the 1% in the military and the 1% of special forces staying married. Can you tell us about the final deployment and leading up to that and everything that happened? Well, in 2016, John decided to become a warrant officer, which is a very unique job in special forces because it's an enlisted guy who becomes um, an officer and is on the command operational team. And so he sees what the enlisted guys see. He understands their struggles. Mm -hmm. So I really, I loved that, especially, but he also has to do all the writing that all the the leadership does. The command team. Yeah, (laughs) so it's it's the worst of both worlds. (laughs) It's the worst thing. It's the worst and also the best. So he was an operational detachment leader when they went to Syria. And this was his second time. In Syria, and when did they leave? Came, when did he leave home? November twenty seventh of two thousand eighteen. Okay, and it was actually the year before he left for Syria on November twenty seventh of two thousand seventeen. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. Similar and, mission. And then he came. No different. Different okay. um, spots in Syria. Okay, um, so, but, but again, he, this, this for your was, family, this is very normal. He gets an assignment. Right, he yeah. goes somewhere. That it's just what happens right. over and over again. Yes. Well, when he came home and was telling me about as much because I don't I don't know anything about the missions. I don't really know a whole lot, but I remember him coming home from them talking about it and presenting it to leadership, what he wanted to do. And he was like, this is the bread and butter of special operations. He's like, this is going to be such a great mission and we're going to accomplish so much. And he was so excited and so proud. And I remember him just being and that's what gives me comfort when I'm sad because he died doing exactly what he wanted to do. And that's it. It's a weird, everyone's like, how does this bring you comfort? I'm like, well, it's because this is who he was. And he, he loved what he did. He loved helping and he freed the oppressed. Um, the oppressed the means to free the oppressed. 
and that is the special forces motto and that's exactly what they were doing very literally that's what he was doing (laughs) exactly oh tabitha my goodness can you tell us about that what does the grief journey look like army officers knocking on your door did you see it in the news how did you know what what had happened well so it was 4 52 in the morning and I sat straight up in my bed like a bomb had gone off in my house. And I swore I heard something. I, I woke up and was like, my heart was beating. I was sweating. And I, it sounded like something went off in my house. I actually retrieved our weapon, cleared the house, and then went up to each of my children and poked them to make sure they were breathing. I was like, something, something's wrong. And I couldn't figure it out. I secured our weapon and then went back to bed. And I slept like before I had children. I was in the deepest sleep in the whole entire world. <laughs> it was it was amazing. And I honestly believe that it was God having me rest before I couldn't rest anymore. Because uh, I, I woke up and I I was late for everything. I was supposed to be at our commander's wife's house because we were planning an FRG event. And I was so late. And I remember just yelling at the kids. I was like, just get your clothes on. We're waffles in the car. Just get it going. Just go. And I dropped off the kids. It was just a weird morning. On the way home, the team sergeant's wife called me and asked me if I had seen Sierra Maps. So there's an app that shows you when there's a bomb, when there's a shot, when anything happens in Syria, there's an app that shows you when and where it happens. Oh it is my goodness! The worst. It is the worst app for Sounds any military like a terrible to look app. At. <laughs> it is a horrible app, and I was like, "What are you doing on that app?" I, to- I was like, "You know not to do that. Like, you know better. We're not supposed to look at that stuff because if we look at that stuff, then yeah, we, you're just going to be paranoid all the time. <laughs> right? Yep. I was like, "You can't. You can't." I was like, "And we, you know, we know where our husbands are, but we act like we don't. We're extremely intelligent women." who constantly act stupid because everyone's like, where's your husband? I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> Being blonde sometimes helps me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I I went home. I sat on my stairs. I pulled up Manbij, Syria, and I saw the explosion. I watched it over and over. I probably watched it 20 times. Oh, my gosh. Um, I knew it was a special forces team just because of the mannerisms of the men and the different cars that they had. Um, and I, I was just terrified. And you could see a tall guy on it. And it was either my husband or the team sergeant. And I can, it's actually my husband. It, uh, and so I went through my whole day. Um, the kids, my twins, got out of preschool at noon and the preschool teacher's daughters actually are a babysitter. And she was like, hey, can you bring her with you today? Because that way I don't have to drop her off for your Girl Scout meeting tonight. And I was like, yeah, not a problem. But I was like, just want you to know if anything happens, um, I might snap at her. Like, it's because it's not her, it's me. I'm not. Sure. It, it's just. There's a lot going and on. And so, right. And so I remember dropping Priscilla off at dance. And watching her dance and a warmth came over me and like, and I felt like a warmth holding my hand and just holding my heart. And it was weird. And I just, I knew it was John. I knew at that moment that he was gone. And I was like, he's gone. I felt like someone had been following me all day because 
I just knew it. So I was like, someone's going to be knocking on my door. If it's not my door, it's like a team wife's door. And I kept looking. I kept going different directions than I normally do just to see if someone was following me. Um, there was a, a gentleman that was retiring who was on the team that was one of our connections. And I called him. I was like, I've never done this. I don't know why I'm freaking out, but all of us wives are freaking out. Have you heard from the team? Have you heard anything? And he was like, it's okay. He's like, you know, they go black. It's fine. It's going to be okay. No news is good news. He's like, just, you know, he's like, I'll, I'll let you know if I hear anything. He's like, just remember, no news is good news. And he's like, it's, it's fine. He was the one following me all day. He was like three cars behind me at the time. Oh, my gosh. Telling me. <laughs> and his wife tells me, he's, she's like, that was the worst moment to tell you that everything was okay because he knew it wasn't. But, so, but because they, of military protocol, he could not say otherwise, correct? No, absolutely. No, he could not. Um, so it's so not him lying he, and being a jerk to you. It's it's there's just no, certain no, no, procedures no. I, to yeah, be followed. No. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm not why, upset with him at why all. Why was it taking so long for them to, to tell you? Because there were three Americans in the bombing at the same time. And so when that happens, when there's multiple casualties, they have to, to notify the next of kin at the same time so we had to wait um joe kent who is shannon kent's husband was actually in africa at the time and they were so they find him because so they were literally following you until they could all yep. coordinate and say we have them let's go in yep. oh yep. my, oh, my goodness. goodness we're gonna have to take a quick break right there because everybody needs to catch their breath and I heard you just say, Tabitha, they also had to find your in-laws because, of course, you might be the yeah. primary next of kin, but your husband has parents as well. And so would the other yes. three yeah. who were killed. They might have uh, they might have a spouse. They might have children. They might have parents. So let's take a quick break. Let's come back. Tell us what it was when they did find you or were able to notify <laughs> you and what that has looked like now for the past little over two years. We'll be right back. All right, Tabitha, so tell us, we know that the day John was killed, three other Americans were killed. Military and just American protocol is that all of you primary next of kin need to be notified at the same time so one family doesn't get it prior to another. The military wasn't able to immediately locate Shannon Kent's husband, Joe, because he was in Africa at the time. Can you tell us what the process looked once they finally found all four of you and what it was like, particularly on your end? I remember this. It's something that's forever in my memory. I was walking to my front door to pick up my Girl Scout leader bag, and I saw their shadows outside, and I screamed at my babysitter to take all the kids upstairs and that they couldn't hear this. I was like, they can't. They can't hear this yet. And... I remember going to the door and opening it and then asking if I was Tabitha Farmer, the wife of Chief Warrant Officer 2, John Farmer. And I said, yes. And all I could hear was, I'm sorry. And I felt, and I've always been so strong. I always said I was never going to fall. I was never going to cry that much. And I couldn't stand. I couldn't breathe. And I remember the chaplain 
blue. And they had tears in his eyes. And I was like, he's hurt. He can't talk. Is that it? And I'm, and I remember early in the day, I actually pulled out my passport in case I could go to Germany. Um, but he didn't know that he was gone. And once I finally stood up, I asked him where the team sergeant's wife was because we always fill out a packet before the guys leave. And they're like, I'm sorry, she couldn't be here because she's not allowed to know before you do. And so, um, honestly, I'm, I'm trying to fix that within the Army that when we fill something out and we're expecting something, it's just like them going on a mission. We have a mission set. We have it figured out in our heads. This is what's going to happen. This is going to happen. That was really hard for her not to be there right then because in my head she was going to be there. But I remember sitting down and just being numb. I don't remember a whole lot from that day. My CAO was introduced to me. He was he was a 30-year-old captain, and he looked terrified. And he so, kept Tabitha, to for those me. yeah those who don't know the military culture very well, a CAO is a casualty assistance officer. So it's an Army yeah. officer assigned to your family to walk you through this horrific process that not only involves the grief and the emotion of the worst loss of your life, but also right. a lot of paperwork and red tape and military paperwork. protocol. So tell us, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just kind of wanted to point that out. Oh, no. bless, bless that sweet captain who, you know, just got oh. to take a drink out of the fire hose. Seriously. Like, I just felt so bad. I was like, oh, my goodness. And the poor gentleman, he, he was just doing his job. And I actually still really good friends with him. I was blessed with a really good CAO for my first one. Um, I've had to have a couple just because he, he had to move away and, but he, yeah, so they have to have lives too. But the question he kept asking me over and over again was if I would allow publicity at Dover. And I was, I was, John was such a sweet husband. He tried to shelter me from so many things of the military that he knew I would be upset about because this was my greatest fear, losing him was my biggest fear in the world. So I know he always tried to shelter me from things. Um, I had no idea that they came into Dover until my husband did. I felt like the worst army wife. I was like, how did I not know this? <laughs> but I remember him asking me over and over again. I was like, I'm not signing anything. I know this is your job, but you can go tell them I'm not signing anything until I can breathe. And then I had the team wives come and just help take care of me. I had two particular amazing friends of mine who unfortunately have had to go through this with other special forces wives. So they kind of knew what was going to happen. And they wrote everything down, everything that was said, everything that I needed to do so that I could answer eventually. It was the longest process. And I really believe that the CAO need to have more training. My CAO did a great job, but I, I felt also felt bad because um, I had three CAOs. And my second one was also a captain of an active ODA, which is Special Forces team. And I felt like I was taking time from the team, which is for Special Forces wife, I never wanted to take time from the team. I never wanted to be priority. Like, does that make sense? Like, I didn't want to. Right. Yeah. So this is something that I am trying to help 
tweak and fix and make better for the next family and for the next for the other CAOs because they're trying to do their job, but there's only so much. I felt the same way about our CAO. He's a wonderful man who was, you know, became like a little brother to me and was so helpful. Right. But he didn't really know what he was doing. And I certainly didn't know what yeah. I was doing. And we're figuring it out no. as we go, which is a hard time to figure something out when there's all of that paperwork accompanying all that right. emotion. And you have no ability to function. Your brain is not working. Well, like you said, right. I can't, I can't no, sign papers great. if I can't breathe. I'm sorry. Right. So yeah, tell I us. I can't think straight. Tell us those first few first few weeks and months it's now been a little over two years how I, I mean to meet you and to talk with you you're this beautiful positive almost glowing <laughs> with light woman and yet you've been through something oh, darker you. than most people can imagine can you share that journey with us I mean I wish we had hours but in a few minutes can you kind <laughs> of share that journey with us well I discovered I have a very dark widow's humor so do we. We are now just best friends. <laughs> I can't. I can't wait till you come to Utah. We'll take you to lunch. It is. It's something that I don't wish upon anybody. But once you become a widow, the worst things are like before John died. I would have been appalled. Now I laugh hysterically, and I'm like, I'm going to hell. John will come save me because I'm laughing at this. This is not appropriate. <laughs> and that's how I'm dealing with it because we always try to find humor in every day and silver lining and everything. John always watched redemption movies and he always loved Hoosiers and Feel the Dreams. And I honestly feel like I'm stuck in the middle of like the really sad part of the movie <laughs> that everybody's <laughs> And that's what I keep envisioning, that I'm just stuck in that really sad part, and it's starting to get better. Like, it's starting. Yeah. I'm able to breathe again. The, the sun is beautiful again. Right. Food is finally starting to taste good, and I want to go on adventures with the kids again. Because before, I was like, I will just sit here and eat soup every day and never do anything ever again. That's, that was, like, the first week. Yeah. Um and it, honestly, I felt like I was doing the cha-cha. I still feel like I'm doing the cha-cha. Where I take two steps forward and like 10 steps back. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm a really bad dancer, apparently. But uh, How about the kids? I, I, I know that's <laughs> the worst question ever. How are oh, the kids? Yeah. How do you help the kids? How do the kids help you? Well, we have our ups and downs, like everybody. When we're having a really bad day, we sit on the couch and we snuggle. We eat all our diet's favorite things. We also work out together because John loved working out and he loved basketball. Um, there's a Special Forces alumni group called Chapter 38. I asked them for a slab and a basketball hoop in our backyard, and they built us a oh, whole I love that. full court. <laughs> they built the, with okay, two you have hoops. to share pictures. You so, have to share pictures. I, I my kids and I, my kids and I have like basketball therapy too. Our, we have some neighbors yeah. in our neighborhood that have a big slab next to their house and they let the neighbor kids come yes. over. And it's funny how we can yell at each other and argue and have a really hard day. And then it's like, Hey, let's go to the court. Let's go shoot hoops. And it, it oh, absolutely. it's yeah. really therapeutic. I love that. I want to see pictures. I'm yes. so grateful that group did that for you guys. That's wonderful. We love going out there because John played basketball in college and all through high school and all through college. And all through college. So, and actually Trump, Trump was the one who became, like, I thought I was going to have to tell President Trump, I got to meet him at Dover first time. And he was so kind and he was so sweet. And he actually told me about my husband 
and oh, I was shocked awesome. and in awe. And I thought I was going to have to like sit down and tell him all the things. Nope. He was like, I hope you understand your husband is a hero and a warrior. He's like the mission that he was on was phenomenal and it would have changed the direction of everything. He's like, and it is actually, he's like, because of their death, it's changing the direction of the war and the fight against ISIS. He's like, I hope oh you understand. Gosh, Tabitha, that's everything. beautiful. I don't agree with him on everything. Sure. But, but that, he got John was, right. Yeah. Well, and I don't agree with John on everything. Only sure. Jesus. So, you know, there's only one man that I'm ever going to agree with about everything. So, but that really helped. And then also I was able to speak to a couple of people in Syria, Syrian officers who told me, they're like, we wish it was a hundred of our officers and our military and not your husband. Um, And that meant a world to me. And they also made a big sign. They had a picture of everybody who was killed and John was in the middle and the biggest. And that spoke volumes to me because he helped restore the water and electricity to Manbridge and helped start a girls' school in the little time that he was there because he deployed November 27th and he was killed January 16th. That is so quick. So so it was, he, he did a lot and it meant so much to me, more to me than anything else that the people there cared a lot about him. Right. And it just it and shows they... who he was. And that they appreciated what he was doing there. I mean, his service right. his service was valued. His service was appreciated and needed. Tabitha, I love you. I wish you were here closer and we could <laughs> we could go to lunch. We could get our kids together. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I've learned from you. Again, here I am thinking I know what it's like to be a military wife and realizing in this conversation I have no idea. I've, I, you know, your, your experience well, has been has- so so different, so unique. But thank you. For loving God and John enough to let him go to war and protect not just America, but really democracy and freedom everywhere. I mean that not as a fellow Gold Star Widow, but just as a grateful American. You know, the cheesy phrase, on behalf of a grateful nation. I hope you feel that. I hope God has sent that spirit to you and your children. Um, That There are lots and lots of people like me who are so sorry for your loss, but so grateful for your service. And we thank you for being willing to send him to war so many times, for being willing to send him (laughs) to training whenever he wasn't at war, and for still loving him, for loving him enough to to share him and to send him. And just know that our hearts are with you and those sweet four kids. And I love hearing that you're starting to learn to laugh again and to see the light, that you're getting out there and working out, and that some days you're just sitting on the couch snuggling with a bunch of daddy's right. favorite it's, treats. I love that it's both. It's not like, okay, we're done. Pack right. that grief up and move right. forward to the basketball court. It's oh, it's everything. No. <laughs> it's everything. It's every day. It's ongoing. Every day. Every day is, yeah. It's waves. It comes in waves. And, yeah. But, and it's weird because I keep, I find I keep falling in deeper in love with him. And so Same. This, like I, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like so you know him better? Saw, yeah. I know Absolutely. so much more. And af- after the weekend at Yusufa, I was able to witness a team of special forces gentlemen clear our house and they they blew a door, cleared the house and blew another door and then they did it again. But they were so concise and slow and every every action they had had like ten thoughts behind it. Mm. And I started crying not because I was scared or anything, it was because I 
understood John so much more and I loved him so much more. I was like, how am I falling deeper in love with him? You know you're yeah. going for his wife. When hearing shots and doors blowing up makes you cry and fall in love deeper with yeah. your husband. But it's like, <laughs> but I love was, that you had that opportunity. It's almost like you got to put on his combat boots for just a minute. And to see yeah. from his perspective the great work, the effort, the precision, the dedication that he and his fellow special operators have put into literally, you know, decades, these quiet professionals who put on their uniform, go to work, no fanfare, but no. serious precision and dedication. All right, Tabitha, what can you tell us about resilience? What does resilience mean to you? I was actually reminded by a, a wonderful lady this weekend, Faith Phelps, who works at USASOC, that one of the main things about special forces is perseverance. And it just resonated with me because I was like, yes, I'm just going to keep going. And if I find a closed door, I'm going to go around the corner. I'm going to find the open door. I'm going to keep moving forward and keep going forward just like John did and just like all of our Army actually does. They constantly are moving forward, constantly trying to find the next door open when they have a door shut on them. And I just was like, that's right. That's exactly how I feel right now. I was like, perseverance just means to keep going. Just keep finding the solution and never take no for an answer. Wow. I love that. I love that. Too. I love that. Looking <laughs> at... okay? No, it wasn't okay. It was fantastic. <laughs> if I find a closed door, I'm going to keep going until I find an open door. How beautiful is that? Thank you, Tabitha. We love you. We're so grateful for you. And we're, you. We're, praying, you we're praying for you and those sweet kids and sending all the good vibes. <laughs> and and I don't know who your basketball team of choice is, but we're big Utah Jazz fans here. So I don't know if that puts you <laughs> with the Memphis Grizzlies or what. But someday we'll have to get together and maybe our kids can have like a three-on-three three or four-on-four four tournament in the backyard or something. So That sounds awesome. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. I've cried probably four or five times during this uh, uh -huh. episode. So very touching. And thank you for not only uh, John's service, like we give thanks to him for his service and his sacrifice, but the sacrifice and service that you've given to our country as well and being a wife to him. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, he made loving him easy. So Yeah. Oh. Such a I love that. that one year I when I <laughs> Except for that one year so when it was really was hard to love him. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, I, so, because we loved him so much, we wanted to see him more. Yeah. That was it. It wasn't. Yeah. And it, the, the word divorce never, ever crossed our minds. No, we just, it's just we, we had, need to like, recalibrate. Was, yes, yeah. yeah. And we went on marriage retreats. And so it was like changing the tires and, you know, just maintenance. Yep. We did lots of marriage maintenance and that. That meant a lot to us. It sounds so, it sounds like your approach to it was able to help you or let you make these trials and these hardships actually make you stronger as a couple. And I yeah. think that I mean, no. we could have a whole other conversation Absolutely. about the value there is in that marriage. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We're grateful for your story. We're grateful Thank for you. we're grateful for our listeners. If you like what you've heard today, we'd love if you'd give us a, a rating and a review. Uh, any comments you have or feedback on Tabitha's great story. And if you're listening and you or someone you know has a real story about real life that you're willing to share, please send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. 
Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Have a great day. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.